Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. And he's speaking to the Jews. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north, and the other half will move toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Amen. Father, we we are just so thankful that you saw fit to tell us ahead of time what was coming. That throughout the prophetic scriptures, through the minor prophets, as we've been studying through the twelve, Lord, that you have again and again proclaimed not what would happen in the short term for Israel, but in the long term for all people who would profess to know Jesus. And who would be your children and who would follow you. Truly, Father, you have given this information clear, concise, and obvious for anybody who is just willing to look. And we are willing and and anxious to look this morning. And truly, Father, we don't just want to understand these things. We want them to increase our longing, our anticipation, our expectation of what you're going to do. Because it strikes me, Lord, even driving here this morning... How with the expectation of the coming of Jesus, there is no single disappointment in this life that can get in the way. There is nothing that can truly take us down. Things let us down, but Lord, you never do. You lay in Zion a a cornerstone, a, a precious cornerstone. And whoever believes in him shall not be disappointed. Oh, we believe this. We know this to be true, Lord. I pray that this reality will become true for someone new today whether in this service or next service, that there might be someone whose life has been a series of disappointments who recognizes in Jesus there is everlasting fulfillment and joy and satisfaction and hope. Would you bring that to bear this morning, Father? In Jesus' name, Amen. Some of you are going to know the answer to this question right off. Others of you will not have a clue. That's okay. What do lions and bears... Eagles and Cowboys, 49ers and Seahawks have in common. (laughs) They're all part of the Thanksgiving Day NFC triple header lineup. For you football fans, it's going to be a good day. And uh, I was going to say, Mitch, you know, you can just sit there all day long and watch football. You can do that. Hawks play at 5.30 on Thursday. The Hawks, of course, are playing Arizona today. We won't get into that. We're just going to pray it was a better game than last week. By the way, I got. Can I talk to my mother-in-law just for a minute? Last week we didn't get to see the game. We were here, you know, as all of you were faithfully here. And so uh, Jeff D'Angelo Tivoed it, saved it, and we went over to their house that after, last Sunday afternoon to watch the game. And we were very careful not to hear from anybody any outcome or anything. Well, Cheryl was talking with Sharon. And she said, don't tell me, don't tell me what the outcome of the game was. And Sharon said, oh, I won't tell you, but it was a good game. 
Sharon? When the Seahawks lose, it is never a good game. Ever. Football and Thanksgiving. You know, it's Thanksgiving week, and that's where we're headed. We're into this week of Thanksgiving. You, If you've been around here long, you know this is my favorite of all the holidays, and it's not because of the food. But I love Thanksgiving Day, and I was looking back because I wanted to understand a little bit more about this Thanksgiving football tradition. How did that get rolling? You know, we've gone back and talked about Abraham Lincoln proclaiming Thanksgiving the fourth Thursday of the month to be a day of Thanksgiving to our beneficent father. And, uh, and I love that. But how did football weave its way into that? You go back 80 years. The first Thanksgiving Day game was in 1934 in Detroit, Michigan. The Detroit Lions had been moved up to Michigan for the first time that year. They were not doing so well. Turnout wasn't that great. And so their enterprising owner said, we got to do something to stir people up, get them out to the, to the stadium here. So they held their first game there, pitting the Detroit Lions, interestingly, against the Chicago Bears, who will now rematch this week. The Lions lost. 19 to 16 on that day, but the game drew 11,000 more fans than ever had before, than usual, at least to the University of Detroit Stadium. Well, that was 80 years ago, and every Thanksgiving since, football has been part of the deal. Uh, it's been a time-honored tradition, both the game and the losing Lions. Both uh, <laughs> football and <laughs> feasting and family, all these things tend to wrap themselves around Thanksgiving. But here's the thing, and you know this, Thanksgiving remains a day set apart. Of any day of the calendar year, holiday-wise, at least in America, it is a day that is set apart to recognize, to remember, if not to thank, our beneficent Father and God. And it's really hard to remove that from the day. Now, people have tried. They've tried to, you know, bring out the turkeys. They've tried to stuff it with all sorts of different things. People yammer about all kinds of things. And some say the situation's getting grave-y. Couldn't work that one in. But the day is about thanking God. Remember this, James 1.17, Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And so, to me, Thanksgiving Day truly remains a holy day. When people say happy holidays, remember that. Happy holy days. It is a holy day. Now that doesn't mean in my home that we get up, put on crimson robes, you know, and knock about the house chanting Gregorian masses. <laughs> Might be a little weird, you know. That's not what a holy day means. It simply means a day set apart. Shabbat was always a holy day each week for the Jewish people because it was a day set apart to the Lord. If I can make any single encouragement for you this week, let Thanksgiving Day be that. A day set apart. Knock out all the other noise and just let the day be a day of thanksgiving to God for everything that happens, every good gift given. Let it be back to the Lord holy. In the Hebrew, Kadesh. Kadesh meaning set apart or dedicated. A dedicated day. Remember the definition, by the way, Kodesh. It is important. The idea of being holy, of being set apart. Just as we dedicate Thanksgiving as a day to the Lord, 
We, we, we dedicate it to thank Him. And we don't have to, we choose to. We choose to set the day apart. Paul put it this way, Romans 14.5, one person regards one day above another. And another person regards every day alike. There are those of you here who absolutely love Christmas, can't get enough. And others who are like, I eh, don't know if I want to be celebrating that. You know what? Paul said, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats, does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So set apart the day as unto the Lord. However you celebrate the day, and even if you are a major football fan and you're going to spend the whole entire day in front of the screen watching the games, you know, do so unto the Lord. And may the Seahawks win. By the way, the Lord wants you to be set apart. Something that it strikes me our culture has come to misunderstand is this whole idea of holiness. When they hear a person talk about being holy, when they hear about Christians use the word holy, it it always kind of, it's off-putting, unfortunately. It's religion, you know? It's self-righteousness. It's better than thou. Holier than thou is the phrase we so often hear. The word just means dedicated, gang. And God wants you set apart to Him. The Lord's desire to redeem you, to wash you, to wash me, to forgive us of our sin, to bring us close to Him as dedicated sons and daughters. That's, that's His great desire. That's a beautiful thing. It's a marvelous thing. That's nothing that the world can get mad at because you know it has nothing to do with how good we are. It has everything to do with how God values His creation. And that He values you, values me so much that He would die for us to set us apart to Him. And because of that, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.15, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. You be set apart because God set apart. You be unique unto the Lord because the Lord is unique in all eternity. The presence of God requires that we are set apart. To be in God's presence, we must be holy. Otherwise, we cannot be where He is. And He knows that. And so He would set us apart. He has a vested interest in making people holy. Now, there's another day set apart. We get to talk about this morning because as you see, the Lord remembers and the Lord blesses at the appointed time. Amen. The Lord remembers, He blesses at the appointed time. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. A day set apart. And by the way, that day was set apart from the very foundations of the world. God knew this day was coming before the first day of creation took place. He set the time apart when He would come to this planet. When He would come the second time and establish the rule and reign that He would promise to His people, Israel, a day set apart Chapter 14, verse 1, Behold, a day is coming, note this, for the Lord. 
More than for anybody else, this is a day for the Lord. This matters to Him. This is important to God. It's His day. We've called it, the Bible calls it the day of the Lord. And this day is coming for the Lord, he says, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. And he's talking about blessing the Jewish people. He's talking about restoring blessing that has been taken from the Jewish people across all that we've seen in history. The Lord's saying, Israel, I'm going to give it back to you. I'm going to make things right. I am going to restore all of your loss. All the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. Verse 2, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured. The houses plundered. The women ravished. And half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. It's not what God wants. But it's what God has foreseen. He knows it's going to happen. Because he's seen it happen before it happens. As we've talked about many times over the years, that's what prophecy is. Prophecy is God telling us, this is what I've already seen. Because God's not limited by time. And so he can see at any point in all history, which means beautifully, wonderfully, he can see the cross at the exact moment that you need the blood covering of Jesus. He sees it all. And because he sees it all, he has seen his day. He knows it's coming. Not that He wants His people to be captured and plundered and ravished and exiled, but He knows they will. He's seen it. You know, that's what sin and rebellion does to us. It ravishes. It plunders. It captures us. It exiles. If we could see sin in its true light, if we could understand it for what it is, we would know the danger of it, how awful the outcome of it truly is. And so again, it's not what God wants for Israel any more than sin is what He wants for you or the punishment of sin. He doesn't want to see people punished. That's why He died. But He has seen this for Israel. And now He warns against it. And this warning, I remind you, came some 2,500 years ago. Verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. And I don't care what nation you're from on the planet. When that day happens, you want to be on the side of the Lord. You don't want to be waving the flag of your home country. You want to be standing with Jesus. On the day, as when He fights in a day of battle. The Lord is, Exodus 15 verse 3 tells us, a warrior. Don't shy away from that, brothers and sisters. It is part of the character of God. He is a mighty warrior. The Lord is His name. See, the Jewish people sang that as the Lord protected them, saved them, brought them through the Red Sea, and destroyed the army of Egypt. They sang praise to the Lord. He is a mighty warrior. That's a good thing. Yes, God is all-powerful. Yes, God is mighty. Yes, God knows how to fight. Isaiah 42, verse 13. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse His zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, He will raise a war cry. He will prevail against His enemies. That is our God. Wow, if, if the Lord is that kind of warrior, if He can go and fight for His people Israel against all the nations of the earth, do you think He can fight for you against the demonic powers that would tra- capture and plunder your life? God's a warrior. He is strong for the battle. 
And we talked about this at length last week in Zechariah Zachariah chapter 12. Think back, Zechariah 12.4 says, In that day I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. I will watch over the house of Judah and I will strike every horse of the people with blindness. Perhaps you thought last week, well, that's not really fair to the poor dumb animal. You know, I mean, the, the, the riders get struck with madness, but the horses get the bewilderment and the blindness. Poor horse. It's not fair. What about that? We'll deal with that on Wednesday night. So if you're an animal lover, come on back. We'll talk about that one. But if this wasn't so tragic, it would be ridiculous. What God describes in verse 3 That even with this forewarning, all of the nations of the world will yet gather against the city of the coming king. People say, I just wish God would would warn us ahead of time. And He has. Of course, how many world leaders read their Bibles? How many study the Word of God to make international decisions? What a great leader would be the one who had a Bible open every morning on their desk, who studied God's Word, who went to the prophets to understand the times in which we live. I will mention this. Benjamin Netanyahu holds a weekly Bible study at his home in Jerusalem. Interesting. I pray he gets it. The Word of God is clear. Messiah prevails and preserves a believing remnant of Israel. He's going to take care of His people. When it all comes down, He will be there for them. And the very preservation of the existence of this ancient people should clue us in as to the determination of God. The fact that the Jewish people are still here is one of the greatest miracles of history. They should not exist. There should not be a Jew on the planet. You understand that despite historical rewrites that would try to say something opposite, there has not been a time in 3,500 years when the land of Israel lacked a Jewish presence. This is God's doing. There have always been Jews in Jerusalem. God has assured that. And even when the Hitlers of the world have risen up and tried to drive out and destroy the Jewish people, and by the way, let me just add, it's not because the Jewish people are all that special. No offense to the Jewish people. But they're no more special than you are or I am, other than the fact that God chose them to enter into a covenant relationship with them to express to the entire world His desire to be in relationship with everybody. But He has preserved them. He has kept them. And... I've shared this with you before. Matthew 24, 34, Jesus said something that can be taken one of two ways. I think it really should be taken both ways. He said, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And he's talking about, I believe, that the, the generation who sees the rebirth of the nation Israel. The, the fig tree that, that blossoms, Matthew 24. A picture of Israel, reborn. And Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so I have taken it and believe Jesus is implying that the generation who sees Israel reborn as a nation will be the generation who sees the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's this generation. Well, Rick, what if you're wrong? What if I am? (laughs) I don't think I am. Could be? Probably not. I think we're in the final 
generation. You've heard me say that. But what's interesting is, while I believe that we are in these last days of the last days of the last days, another explanation is that this generation, this Ganea in the Greek, can also mean this nation. That this nation, this people group, will not pass away until all these things take place, which is Jesus guaranteeing the preservation of Israel. They're not going to pass away. They will always be here. You can't get rid of the Jewish people. Because God has determined that He will see His people saved by His Word. Either way, both interpretations of Matthew 24-34 fit the signs of these times in which we live. Now the prophecy arrives at its apex moment, verse 4. In that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Touchdown. Game-winning goal. Jesus in the end zone. Those of you who have traveled with us to Israel, you know it is my favorite place in all the land. There is nowhere I would rather stand than on the Mount of Olives. I love to be there because of, as my wife has said before, because not only what's happened past, not what's going on presently, but what we know is going to happen on that mount in days yet to come. Jesus stepping foot there. The Mount of Olives, it lies across the Kedron Valley from the Temple Mount. It is a lush green hillside, except for the part that's a massive Jewish graveyard. And as you look at it, you see all of it. <laughs> Did you get it? You see, it's Mount of Olives, Mount Olivet. You see all of... Anyway, you see it all. <laughs> The Mount of Olives, from this mountain, Ezekiel saw the departure of the glory of the Lord. Ezekiel 11.23 From this mountain, Ezekiel saw the return of the glory of the Lord. Ezekiel 43 From this mount, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Down this hillside, He rode the foal of the donkey. On this slope, He prayed under intense pressure. In a garden called the Olive Press, Gethsemane. From the Mount of Olives, Jesus ascended into heaven. And to the Mount of Olives, Jesus will return. How do we know that for certain? Well, Zechariah just told us. He will set foot on the Mount of Olives. But he's not the only one who told us that. Acts chapter 1 verse 9. He was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. The apostles were there. And Jesus ascended before them. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? Now I would have quickly answered, because I've never seen a dude fly. (laughs) But they say, this Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And then we're told they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. That's where they were when he ascended which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. A Sabbath day's journey, don't let that throw you off. It's 2,000 cubits, 3,000 feet. So if you're standing on the Mount of Olives, looking across the Kedron Valley to the Temple Mount, it's about 3,000 feet. So the Bible obviously is accurate as ever. By the way, not a single apostle ever recanted this story. 
They saw him go. And every one of it, every one of them carried that claim to their death, holding fast to what they saw with their eyes. And when we think about how, how fantastic sometimes the, the, the miracles of God in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the interactions of God with His people, and the way that He intervened, and we think, wow, I, just, I wish God would part the seas you know, in our day. It, let me remind you how remarkable it was for the apostles to see the miraculous in Jesus. To see Him do all these things. And then to watch Him ascend before their very eyes from this same mountain, the Mount of Olives. David Barron writes, His blessed feet, which in the days of His flesh walked wearily over this mountain on the way to Bethany, shall in that day be planted here in triumph and tragedy. Jesus will stand on the Mount of Olives. And we're told when He does so, the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Talk about spiking the football. I mean, what a moment of joy and power as Jesus, by stepping foot on the Mount of Olives, will split it in half. Wow. Wow. Verse 5, you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. The prophet Amos referred to that earthquake. Amos chapter 1, verse 1, in his introduction, he talks about in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now that's the only other scriptural reference we have to this great earthquake that took place in the days of Uzziah. And that earthquake happened 200 years before Zechariah in this prophecy is referring to it. Which tells us it must have been a pretty severe earthquake to still be used as an example of what was going to happen. And the people would remember it even 200 years after the fact. And they flee. The Word tells us. They flee at, at the setting down of Jesus, at the creation of this valley. They flee through the valley. By the valley, God says, of my mountains. Because right now, there's just one mountain, all of it. At that time, the valley will split and there will now be two mountains to the east of Jerusalem where once there was one. And that great valley will be the escape route of the Jewish people in the last moment as the terror reaches its apex in Jerusalem. They will flee through this valley created by the touchdown of Jesus. They will flee, we're told, to Azel. Where's that? We don't know. Probably not far. Because they're not going to have to flee far. They're just going to basically run to where Jesus is. But here's the thing that's amazing. The name Azel, while we don't know the precise location of it, has a meaning, and its meaning is reserved. They're going to flee to a place reserved. There is a reservation for that remnant of the Jews who are at that time still in Jerusalem. By the way, I don't think it's all the Jews. Because I think for the last three and a half years, and we look at other scriptures to imply this, the last three and a half years of this horrible tribulation period, there will be a place for the remnant of Israel in the wilderness, a place for them to flee and be safe. This then would refer to those Jews who did not flee at that time but who remained in Jerusalem, who are in Jerusalem at the moment that Jesus returns. And for that scattered few, 
They will have a place to flee just as the rest of their brothers had already fled three and a half years before. But I love this. They flee to a place reserved. Back in the day, I was a big Seinfeld fan. And one of my favorite episodes was the one where Jerry goes to get a rental car reservation. You all remember that one? And he walks up to the counter and he says, I'd like my reservation. And she said, I'm sorry, we don't have a car for you. And he says, you have to have a car. I have a reservation. And she said, yes, but we don't have one. Uh, And he goes, do you know what reservation means? I I know what reservation means. I don't think you do, he says. (laughs) You see, you know how to take the reservation. You just don't know how to hold the reservation. And really, the holding is the most important part. (laughs) When God makes a reservation, He keeps it. He holds it. And this place, this Azel, this reservation for Israel is held for them. And by the way, that's grace. Grace is when you are received by Jesus, when you receive Him by faith, He reserves a place for you for all eternity. And He knows how to keep a reservation. He knows how to hold it. And so the Lord holds their reservation right now. Do you have a reservation with the Lord? Have you made a reservation with Him? Well, I don't know how to do that. Ask Him. It's so simple. In fact, it's so simple, Jesus really doesn't give a specific, exact, precise prayer that we have to pray. He just says, come to me in faith. Believe in me. You know, give your life to me. Enter into relationship with me. Paul says, believe that He resurrected from the dead. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. That's it. And you have a reservation with the Lord. This new valley that splits all of it may be the valley of Jehoshaphat. Some have have postulated, and I have, that that perhaps the, the Kedron Valley is the valley of Jehoshaphat. For the first time this last week, I thought, wait a minute though. Jesus creates a new valley here when He returns. God says, I'm going to judge people in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Perhaps this is that valley. Joel chapter 3 verse 2. I'll gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. Now, listen, understand this. That's Joel chapter 3 verse 2. Do you know what he's talking about there? That is not judgment day. That is the day of the judgment of the nations. And if you compare this to Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats entering into judgment of the nations, separating the nations like a shepherd separates his sheep from his goats. And in that separation, the standard, Jesus says, it's all going to be based on how you treat these brothers of mine. Well, here's a supporting verse for it that Joel says, God says, I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel. So that judgment on that day is based on how the nations have treated Israel over the past seven years. It is the judgment of nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Joel 3.12 says, Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Jesus' glorious appearing on the Mount of Olives is the moment for which all creation anxiously longs. 
Paul says all creation groaning in expectation of his return. When I'm having a tough day, when I'm having a, a hard time, when I've been disappointed, nothing encourages me more than this. Than to realize that regardless of what happens on a day-to-day basis in my life, no, regardless of how I may be down, that there is a great day coming. But there is a promise yet before us that is absolute and is sure. And I think about Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Wait, sons of God? Rick, did you get that wrong? Go back. It's got to be for the revealing of the Son of God. Singular, right? No. It's plural. Who are the sons of God to be revealed? They are His team. You see, Jesus, when He, when he brings about that glorious touchdown, is not alone. His team is with Him. His players, His franchise. <laughs> No, we, they are. <laughs> a franchise because they're bought and paid for with His own blood. He owns them. This is His team. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord... my You will flee by the valley of my mountains. We covered that. Okay. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. Heavenly franchise. Now listen. This does not deny, nor should it be confused with the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. The pre-tribulation rapture. Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. It simply means, can sound theological, it simply means that before the tribulation time, before the seven year tribulation, talked about in Revelation 6-19, through referred to in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, throughout scripture this comes up again and again, this, this tribulation period. That before that happens, that the church will be caught up, will be removed from this world. Oh, you mean like that Left Behind series? No, I mean like this preceded the Left Behind series, okay? (laughs) I'm I'm talking about like that Bible series. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will remain and will be caught up together with them, caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. Last I checked, the Mount of Olives was not in the air. It's not in the clouds. It's not even a tall enough mountain to be in the fog. It's not a cloudy hill. It's not like, you know, Mount Rainier where you look at that and sometimes you go, yeah, about halfway up, there's the clouds. So maybe we meet Jesus in the clouds on the Mount of Olives. No. The Mount of Olives is a short little hill. And that's where Jesus comes with all His holy ones. And yet, Paul's talking about in 1 Thessalonians an event wherein we meet Jesus in the air. And I know that there are some who are post-tribulation. They believe that the church is going to go through the tribulation. But then they have to explain to me bungee theology because that's what it is. We go up and we meet and we come right back down. Besides, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 tells us that we are not destined for wrath, but for salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. Pre-wrath, pre-tribulation. 
before all this takes place. But here Jesus sets foot on the Mount of Olives and all the holy ones with Him. And you need to understand this idea of the rapture of the church and how it ties in because this is something that happens at least seven years before touchdown. If it didn't, this verse wouldn't be accurate. The Apostle Paul wrote in Titus 2.13, We are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. What's the blessed hope? The blessed hope of the church is that we are not destined for wrath. That is my hope. That I will be pulled out. That I will be saved by the grace and the blood of Jesus. Sufficient to cover all my sins so that there's not some remnant of my sin that I still have to pay for in wrath. Do you understand that? That the whole concept of purgatory denies the grace of God. That the whole concept of the church going into and through tribulation and the outpouring of the wrath of God denies the grace of God to those who receive it by faith. Either we believe that grace is fully sufficient or we do not. But God's grace is. We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. That's two things that we have to look forward to. The rapture of the church, the blessed hope, and the glorious appearing. I need some help. Mitch um, and Bill, would you guys grab those real quick, split them in half, and pass them out? Okay. Um, this, you're not going to need this while I go through it. I'm going to go through it. You can take these home because I have all the verses. I didn't have room on there to put additional verses. So, you can take these, put them in your Bible. But it's something that I ran across years ago, and it's so good, and it's a, a contrast between the glorious appearing, Jesus touched down on the Mount of Olives, and the rapture of the church. Two separate events, two separate things. Let me see if I can help you see this, understand it real quickly, in a nutshell, in Scripture. Okay, The, the verses will be provided, provided for you so you can study them at home. But check this out. Differences between the rapture and the glorious appearing. Number one, in the rapture, there is instantaneous immortality for all of those who are raptured. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Instantaneous immorality. Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. Immediately changed. In the glorious appearing, in the glorious appearing, there's a thousand year kingdom with mortality. Immortality for those raptured. Mortality for those who go into the kingdom. Isaiah 65 verses 20 through 25. Talk about children born. Talk about people dying. There is mortality in the kingdom. The rapture. In the rapture, only a select few will see Him. Matthew 24, 37 through 31. Some will be caught up, some will be left. Some will see Him, others will not. In the glorious appearing, Matthew 24, 29 through 31, every eye will see Him. Two different events. In the rapture, in the catching up of the church, it comes before, as I said, the day of wrath. The glorious appearing comes after the time of wrath. The catching up. In that, Satan, check this out, Satan is caught off guard. He doesn't see it coming. He doesn't know it's coming. He has no idea of that day or the hour. There's no reference to the devil when you're talking about the rapture of the church in Scripture. And yet in the glorious appearing, (laughs) Satan is caught. And he's bound for a thousand years, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. 
The rapture can happen anytime. Mm-hmm. Everything on God's prophetic calendar has taken place that needs to take place before the rapture. It can happen in any moment. Mark 13, 32. The glorious appearing of Jesus Christ happens exactly seven years after Israel signs a covenant of peace with Antichrist. Daniel 9, 27. So you can count down. From the moment of the signing, count down seven years, that's when He's coming. But the rapture we just don't know. In the catching up of the church, we go to a place prepared. John 14, verses 1 through 3. In the glorious appearing, Jesus comes to earth and sets up His throne in Jerusalem. In the rapture, the heavenly stay is short term. Again, seven years. In the glorious appearing, the earthly stay is a bit longer, a thousand years. In the rapture, believers, catch this, believers are judged for reward. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Revelation 22, verse 12. Look these up on your own time. In the glorious appearing, the nations are judged for kingdom entry. Two more. In the rapture, we are taken up again to see Jesus, to meet Him in the air. In the glorious appearing, He sets foot on the Mount of Olives. That's one of the most distinct. And finally, the tenth one on this list, in the rapture of the church, Christ comes for His own. In the glorious appearing, Christ comes with His own. And it, to me, is one of the greatest treasures in all of Scripture. In the Old Testament concealed, in the New Testament revealed. In the Old Testament, a hidden thing. A buried treasure. In the New Testament, the reality is opened up for us to see. That the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with Him. Now some will argue, holy ones. It's angels. You're talking about angels. Remember the word we saw when we started out? Kadosh. Holy. The holy ones are the Kadoshim in Hebrew. That is not the word ever, ever once used of the angels, except when it's used as a descriptive phrase for the angels, the holy angels. The Kadosh Malach or Malachim. When you see the word angels in the Hebrew Scripture, it's always Malachim. It's never singularly Kadosh or Kadoshim. The holy ones here are the Kadoshim. Well, but but do do angels then come back with them? Do they have to stay in heaven? What's, What's the deal with them? Yes, angels do come back. They're part of this entire cadre. It's not just the saints. It's saints and angels. I mean, this is a huge team that that Jesus is building up. Quite a franchise. (laughs) Jesus said in Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him. So we know right there, angelos in the Greek, angels. We know angels are going to come with Him. Then He will sit on His glorious throne. But He also brings with Him the kedoshim, or the Greek word, some of you know this, hagios. The plural is hagioi. Believers in Jesus Christ are the hagioi. The word in the Greek is translated in your New Testament, saints. The saints come with Him. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. He comes to be glorified in His saints. His hagioi on that day. And to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. And again, the word there for angels in the Greek is a different word. Angelos. 
But for the saints, it's Hagioi. Jude 14, giving us again that first prophecy ever, ever spoken. Enoch and the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His Hagioi, His holy ones, His saints. The angels come and the saints come back with Him. Keep your finger there in Zechariah 14 and quickly jump all the way to the end of the New Testament, Revelation 19, our go-to book, especially when talking about these things. Revelation chapter 19, verse 8. I'll give you just a second to find it because it's not that hard a book to find. (laughs) Revelation chapter 19, verse 8. I I know we've looked at this before. I just love looking at it. It's so encouraging. In fact, back up to verse 7. Why miss that? In fact, let's start in Revelation chapter 1. No. (laughs) Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. The bride always referring to Ephesians chapter 5, referring to the church. And there's even a further picture of this in verse 8. It was given to her to clothe herself. Note that, given to her. She didn't, she didn't make it herself, it was given to her. To clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the Hagioi, the saints. Now skip down, verse 14. Where we're told... And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Oh wait, that's what the bride wears. We're following him on white horses. I have never in the history of the world heard of an army dressed in fine linen, white and clean. You, you naval personnel, help me with this. That probably wouldn't be a good idea, would it? You know? Fine linen, white and clean. It is the garb of the bride. It is the garb of those who follow him back in that day, who return with Him in that day. Having been caught up, having been changed in the twinkling of an eye into glorified eternal bodies, this group of people, saved by grace, graced by faith, trusting in and loving the Lord Jesus, believing it yet having not seen, but we come back now with Him as witnesses of all that's taking place. And what's marvelous about Zechariah 14, you can go back there, is that as we read and study these things, our perspective is not from the Mount of Olives looking up. Our perspective is from the heavens looking down as we return with Jesus to watch Him set foot on the Mount of Olives. And for those of you fighters who really want to, you know, mess it up and get into the war, it'll be over before our horses land. (laughs) But we will be there with Him. All the holy ones with Him. Now listen. Do you understand then why it is so incredibly significant that we be holy as He is holy? If we are to be the holy ones who come back with Him, then what He's doing right now in your life and in mine is teaching us what that means. It's called sanctification. He is sanctifying us to be holy as He is holy. That my mannerisms, my behavior, my thought process, my, the, the hidden thoughts in my head, 
is all being washed and cleansed and changed after the pattern of Jesus Himself in this life. That this year, yes, I should be more holy, more set apart, more dedicated to the Lord than I was last year. Or 10 years ago. Or 20 years ago. That we are in process. That is, believers in Jesus. In process of holiness to be the set apart, to be the dedicated unto the Lord. Without holiness, you cannot be on the team. Without holiness, you will not ride on that day. Without holiness, no one can be in the presence of the Lord. And as Mitch so wonderfully pointed out in the communion message, the law does not make you holy. The law just shows you how unholy you are. I am full of earth and dirt. I am prone to depravity, we sang. He is everything that is bright and clean, and He covers me. He cleanses me. He changes me. See, that's the message that, that people need to hear. Your friends, your family, this Thanksgiving, they need to hear the message of holiness, but not as you look down your nose. They need to hear the fact that the only reason why you are anywhere closer to God now than you were even a week ago is His sanctification and His holiness. His work in you. And all Jesus says is, come to me and let me get to work. And in the moment we come to Jesus, He saves us. We have our reservation, our Azel. And then He begins to wash us and cleanse us. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Paul says, So that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father, At the coming of our Lord, or literally in the coming of our Lord, or with the coming of our Lord Jesus, with all His holy ones, His saints. Few people in the world, few of us, to be honest, would really consider ourselves holy. And those in here today who think, well, I'm pretty holy, you need to bow a little lower. Because no amount of good deeds, no amount of righteous behavior, no amount of of trying to do right makes you holy. Jesus does. See, that's why He came the first time. He came the first time to make a way to holiness so that when He comes the second time, we can join Him. We can come with Him. We are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. But Paul goes on from there in Titus 2.14. He says, Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Set apart, dedicated, holy ones. Are you zealous for good? Are you zealous for righteousness? Do you desire holiness in this world? And that's the calling of followers of Jesus, not to look more and more like the world. You know, not to hang with culture, but to be zealous for the things of God. Things that bring glory to His name. Now, take a peek at the end result in the kingdom. Skip all the way down in Zechariah 14, 
to verse 20. In that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house, that is the the bowls and the pans and the pots for, for the incense and the holy things and the sacrifices in the house of the Lord, the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. Bowls for offerings, bowls for cranberry sauce will be equally holy. I mean, do you get it? This is so marvelous to me. Think about the mountain of dishes in your sink on Thanksgiving Day. The mess that sits there. See, I don't see that. What I see is the Norman Rockwell, man, the turkey's on the, on the table, and, and the kids are gathered around, and they're cleaned and washed, and everything's just perfect, you know. My wife sees the dishes and calls me to help. It's the moment every Thanksgiving that I hate the most. Someone's got to clean that stuff up. Kids! <laughs> Game's on! You know, think about this. He says in every kitchen in Jerusalem, the pots and pans, the common everyday vessels will be holy to the Lord. Why? Because Jesus is there. And where Jesus is, everything is holy. Even the pots for cooking. Holy dishes. Amazing. Do you feel holy today? I'm guessing for the majority, probably not. I'm guessing, I could be wrong, but when you think about how you are before the Lord, you know there's some stain there, and you know there's some tarnish. There's some aspect of your life that is unclean. You will never be able to scrub off the mess. But to be a holy one, holy to the Lord, comes about by the unique dedication, the the, the offer of Jesus to come and be washed, to let Him cleanse you. His blood is the perfect cleansing agent and washes all sin away, forgiven once and for all, to make us whole, holy to the Lord. Romans chapter 14, verse 17 tells us, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, and it is going to be that way in the coming kingdom, holy to the Lord. God wants it for you now. He desires holiness for His people now. Holiness for anybody whose life is stained, whose life needs cleaning. So that we are caught up when He calls, we meet Him in the air, and so we are ever with the Lord, and when He comes back, we come back, His holy ones. If you have never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this is what we do. We want to be a place that is a constant invitation to receive the blessing of the Lord Jesus, a relationship with Him. If you have never given your life to Jesus, do it today. There are no strings attached other than Jesus saying, I want to walk with you, I want to save you for all eternity. So if you have never given your life to Him, come give your life to Him. Walk up front while we sing this song. Talk with one of these folks up here about becoming a a follower of Jesus. But even if you have, 
if you feel unholy, come up and, and, and pray. And get that stuff washed off of you. Because God doesn't want you carrying around the stains of life. He invites you to come today and be clean before Him. As we sing together, please come.